You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 35 West Shelton Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.church. Hey there. All right. So we'll see how this goes. I'm not used to using a mic for this, so we'll, we'll see. Uh, hi there, I'm Jim, uh, Jim Getz, if you don't know me, uh, I use he or they pronouns. Uh, and um, as Carol brought up, we're doing this series this summer on uh, women in the Bible. And um, it occurred to me sort of mid-talk last week uh, as uh, Tess was talking about Mary and Martha um, and was able to read the entire passage uh, from the Gospels. I'm like, my story is 10 chapters long. Oops. There you go. Uh, so most of the time, I, uh, I'm, I'm a full-time professor over at Temple and the Intellectual Heritage Program, which is uh, a great books program. And so every semester, one of the things we're doing is teaching the Bible. And the, the book of the Bible I usually teach, you know, probably probably for like the eight, last eight, nine years, has been Esther. It's the one I've chosen out of all the possible choices. Uh, because it had, there's so much meat on the bone that you can talk about. And usually when I teach at a temple, uh, we spend a week and a half to two weeks on it. So that's about four and a half to six hours. So what I'm saying is if you have any dinner plans, <laughs> No, I won't go that long. I've got about as long as a TED Talk, and I've been teaching online long enough. I think I can do that. Uh, so uh, Esther, though, does have so many issues that we can bring up when we talk about it, both the, the book as a whole and obviously Esther as an individual. Uh, and so we're going to focus on sort of those two aspects of it. There's obviously things we're not going to be able to spend any time on. Um, and if you want to know more, if you want to know more, you know, talk to me later about some of these things. But... Um, it's such a, a fascinating book because there have been, it's always been sort of itself on the margins. It's the only book of the Bible that we haven't found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the, the Kirbert, wow, boy, this gets really loud. Okay, I'm gonna stand back. Uh, so uh, the Qumran community of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they don't, they, as far as we can tell, they did not recognize Esther. They don't have a copy of it in the manuscripts there. Um, the uh, rabbis who gathered after the fall of the Second Temple uh, at Jamnia to decide, you know, to make the final decision, what's going to be the Hebrew Bible? What's going to be the Old Testament? They argued about three books, and Esther was one of them. The other two were Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. But according to multiple reports, uh, Esther was the last one they actually agreed on to be part of the Bible. It took them the longest on Esther. And when you start to look at the, the book itself, you can see why it is in this kind of marginalized or kind of you know, looked at askance in many respects. Uh, the book never mentions God. Uh, it's the only book of the Bible that doesn't mention God. There you go, that's, for your, that's your quizzo trivia bit for the day. Um, and um, not only that, Esther and Mordecai as well, the other, uh, uh, Jewish character in the book never really do anything religious. There's no sacrifices. There's no prayers. There's nothing, you know, for a book in the Bible. They're not doing anything religious-y. Uh, and these things have vexed interpreters for generations. The uh, Jewish community in Alexandria, Egypt, 
Uh, when they translated the Bible from Hebrew to Greek about two centuries before Jesus, they um, added a bunch of stuff to Esther. They added six whole chapters uh, that were basically all prayers and references to God and making sure that everybody's pious and everybody's on the up and up. And so it, it reads much more like you'd expect in the Bible. Uh, but the fact that they added all of this stuff in gives you a little bit of an idea of sort of the that that the part of the problem, right? It begs the begs the question of like, so what's going on with this? Uh, and hopefully, I can I can show you as we talk about uh, Esther today that I think it's actually it's not a bug, it's a feature that that God is is sort of off to the side in the text. Um, Esther, the character Esther herself. Uh, is all, much like the book itself, uh, sort of a marginalized figure. I mean, obviously, we were talking about marginalized voices all summer. We were talking about uh, the, these, the women of the Bible. But it's more than that with Esther. Esther, uh, obviously, she's a woman. She's a young woman. Uh, but her family are refugees. Her um, family, two or three generations before the story starts, were... Um, uh, part of the, the uh, group that Nebuchadnezzar um, exiled, pulled out of Jerusalem, and took to Mesopotamia. Um, the story itself also talks about how Esther is an orphan. Her parents are dead. She is being raised by her cousin, Mordecai. Um, she's also a young woman, right? She's not married yet. She's a virgin. Um, so even a more marginal place in society. And of course, then she's also an ethnic minority in, in, uh, in, in our story, in, which takes place in the Persian capital of Susa, uh, and also a religious minority. And so you can start to see how conscribed, how boxed in, and how few choices this young woman has. Uh, just at the outset, how, how like, just tight, how, how, how tight little space she's stuck in. Um, and so all that is just sort of from a couple of verses at the beginning of the text. Uh, we can start to see that. The, where the story itself starts, though, is with the story of the king of Persia, who is called in the text Ahasuerus. Uh, sometimes it's translated as Xerxes, sometimes Artaxerxes. There's a bunch of arguments about that. We're not going to get into it. I'm just going to say Ahasuerus throughout. So there you go. Uh, so King Ahasuerus is this figure in the story who is just intense. He's over the top. Uh, he makes, he doesn't do anything halfway. He takes everything far way, way too far, uh, to an absurd level. And as the story starts, he finds himself in need of a, uh, a new companion, uh, a new queen, a new uh, courtier, a, no, a, a, a new lady. And so rather than do something normal like you would expect in, in politically, like marrying into a royal, another royal family or something like that, instead he, he creates a new uh, committee that's job is to go and find the most beautiful women from the entire empire and bring them all to the capital of Susa, at which point they will all go through a year of cosmetic treatments. They'll spend six months being bathed in myrrh oil and another six months being perfumed, uh, after which time each one of these women will spend one night with the king. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. 
and that's right. And so it's it, it's ridiculous. It's over the top. It's absurd. What's being presented here, um, and that's par for the course. All, that's part of what the book is doing. It's it's every time the Persians do something, it's a massive bureaucracy. It's absurd in its implementation, uh, and just way too much. Uh, and this is part of this this big way too much uh, pulls. Esther in. Uh, Esther is one of these women uh, who is seized and pulled uh, into the capital at uh, Susa. Notice how I phrased that, seized. These, these women have no choices in this. This is not uh, a beauty, I, I, you know, I've, I've watched the Veggie Tales, right? I've seen the, you know, almost Telemunda dramas of the Book of Esther. That's not really accurate. Uh, these women are not given a choice. They're not in some beauty pageant. These women are taken uh, their families have no choice in this, and they are brought, and they are going to become part of the royal harem. Boom. That's it. Uh, and that's now their life. Um, and somewhere in the process of Esther being taken and put into the royal harem, Mordecai, her um, adoptive father and cousin, um, tells her to keep her Judaism on the down low. Yeah, don't tell anybody that you're Jewish which is kind of an interesting aside. And it's, only, it's, it's presented parenthetically in chapter two. Uh, and it, it's obviously, after everything I've just told, told you about her social location, is, it makes strong sense. She's already marginalized six ways till Sunday. Why bring this up as well? But there's an interesting problem with this, which most of us in the room today wouldn't think of, which is, you know, there's a lot of things that are tells that you're Jewish in in ancient Persia, right? So if she's keeping her Judaism on the down low, that means she's also not keeping kosher. She's not obeying, the, she's not observing the Sabbath. She's not, obviously the, the temple I think is still destroyed. So she wouldn't have been doing sacrifices anyway or anything, but, but there's a lot of other things that good Jewish women would be doing and she is not. And, you know, just for a point of context, another story about um, exiles uh, in, in foreign courts is the book of Daniel. And if you think of that book, uh, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel himself are always getting in trouble. Why? Because they're wearing their faith on their sleeve. Everybody knows what they're up to. It's quite obvious. Esther's told to keep it on the down low. And again, there's a difference, you know, as uh, scribes who are uh, high-ranking officials and, and young men as opposed to a young woman who is literally in the harem, right? It's a very different location she's finding herself in, but there's, it is part of the misgivings of this story that she is in this place and has to keep it, keep it all, all inside, keep it all on down. Can't tell anyone about who she actually is as the story begins. Um, so with that all set up, the story quickly moves to this Discussion and this this conflict between Mordecai, uh, Esther's cousin, and uh, this high-ranking official, the the sort of prime minister or grand vizier of the Persian Empire, a man named Haman. And there are good reasons, you know, we could spend an hour talking about what's going on between Haman and Mordecai. But this is a story, we're talking about Esther. Uh, but as per the themes of the text. 
it, th this conflict becomes way overblown very quickly. And where it winds up landing is that Haman decides that he's just gonna bribe the king uh, and uh, commit genocide, just kill all the Jews. And again, you're like, whoa, whoa, that's way over the top. But again, that's one of the themes in the story. And it cr and creates a whole new bureaucracy to make this happen, too. There are new laws. It's way over the top again. Um, when this becomes uh, public knowledge, once it's posted throughout the kingdom that this is going to happen, uh, Mordecai is very upset. You know, he... Um, puts on sackcloth and ashes. Uh, and even though Esther is now inside the harem, inside this precinct far away from the public eye, um, she finds out about it, and they wind up sending messages back and forth between the two of them. And um, Esther is warned by Mordecai that just because you're in the palace, just because you're in the harem, don't think that this is necessarily going to mean, mean that you're safe. You know, this, you know, you're in danger here as well. And... Another one of those places that oftentimes when you see different retellings, it's sometimes put in a different way, um, is that in the middle of that, those exchanges, it's Esther that comes up with an idea of how to save everybody. Sometimes you see this, I think, I want to think that VeggieTales has it, actually, that it winds up being Mordecai's idea. It's not Mordecai's idea. Mordecai is beside himself with grief and is put on sackcloth and ashes. It's Esther, who's the level-headed one, who comes up with a plan. And she comes up with this idea of presenting her case before the king and getting him to act on the behalf of her, her family, and the Jewish people at large. Now remember, again, we're not in the, you know, telling, you know, telling a way of a, a romance between, that's not, the, that's not what's actually happening here. She's had, as far as we know, one night with the king, one of unknown number of women. Um, but, so it's, it's not like, it's my bae, right? This is my queen. No, she's one of many, many women that he has been with. Um, but she, so it is a real danger in this situation. And again, remember how conscribed she is. Uh, and so she does present herself before the king. And the, the, according to the courtly contrivances that are expressed in, in Esther, um, if she shows up in front of the king's presence and hasn't been called for, if, he, if the king does not uh, raise his scepter towards her, which seems like a double entendre, um, and recognize her, it's a little, it's a spicy book, people. All right. Um, but if he doesn't do this, then um, she can be executed on the spot. So she does, she presents herself before the king, uh, and he uh, you know, recognizes her and asks her what she wants, and she says, come to a banquet. And then there's a second banquet, because again, everything has to be done to excess. You can't, why have one banquet when two could, well, we can have two. So there are these double banquets that she, ha that she has with both uh, Ahasuerus and uh, Haman. Which is a, and it's just the three of them, which is an amazing, mind-blowing thought. Here is this man who kind of owns you, uh, and also this man who's trying to kill you, and you're having dinner with them twice. Like, it's, I mean, it, we can kind of laugh about it, but it's also just dread. Like, it's... It's a very tenuous situation she finds herself in. And at the second banquet, maybe the, part of the reason for having two banquets is to lull 
especially Haman, into a false sense of security about it. She reveals that Haman is out to kill her and her family and her people. And then, as is how this story goes, everything goes awry way, way, way too far. Uh, And very quickly, Haman is executed. Haman's entire family is executed. There are new laws put in place. uh, And the the Jews are saved. All of the property and possessions of Haman are given to Esther, then gives it to Mordecai, probably because she can't own property in this culture. That's... Uh, and that's and 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 then that's basically and the, oh and then last thing in chapter ten, ha, uh, Mordecai is then made like big given Haman's position in the court. Story's over. It's a weird ending. Like it, it ties up really nicely in a bow, but there it doesn't do any of those kind of Bible-y things we expect. Right? Again, the the text never mentions God. Uh, and we have other stories where that are uh, are about like Jews or or other followers of the God of Israel in foreign courts. Well, I mentioned Daniel, the book of Daniel, but also the stories uh, that we find in Joseph chapters 37 through 50 also recount similar kind of tales. And it's interesting that those definitely bring God more into the story, if only at the end. God's sort of in the background all through the Joseph cycle, but at the very end in chapter 50, you get this grand reveal where Joseph says, kind of explains what's been going on the whole time. He says, well, he's talking to his brothers who are worried about Joseph taking revenge on everything they've done to him. Uh, And he says, well, why would I do that? What you intended for evil, God has used for good. It's like, oh, it's very pretty and very nice. Yay. Um, But we don't even get that here. Uh, at the end of uh, Esther, it just ends with this, in the, into this very secular, very much, uh, you know. And then Mordecai is put in a position of power. Esther is uh, Esther has saved all of the Jews, which you know is a, definitely a big thing for marginalized woman who's you know in the harem to do. But there's always these questions, and again, this is why I started off with saying about how. Different traditions weren't sure what to do with this. The Dead Sea Scrolls didn't keep the book. They added stuff in Alexandria. And the, and, uh, the rabbis of Jamnia argued about, well, should this really be in the Bible? But it's really, it's, I've decided and, uh, uh, that this is really the best place this could end. Because we can think about this in, from other directions, right? What do, what do you say at the end of this? I mean, at the end of the story, you're, the, the Jewish people have endured and attempted genocide and Esther is still in the, in the royal harem, right? What are you going to say to this person? You know, he's going to come in and be like, you know, well, all things work to the good, right? It's not a good moment to kind of have that sort of cheap, blithe statement of like, well, Jesus was, you know, God was using all of that for it. Really? The genocide? That creates whole other issues of questions about the justice of God, right? Why would God let that happen? And so Esther is, I think, is wonderful because it doesn't, it doesn't go for this very bland, very cheap answer. It lets us sit at the end of the story with this, right? Esther is not, Esther has no assurance when she presents herself to the king that things are going to work out right. She hasn't had a prophet 
show up. She hasn't had the fire by night or the cloud by day. None of these things have happened. She's not, you know, put out a fleece and it's got wet or not wet or whatever the heck is going on with that story. Um, I always have a hard time remembering what the order is on that one. But she, all she's doing is what she can. And that's very reassuring because that's where most of us live. Most of us don't have, you know, the, the, the burning bush show up and tell us what we should do. Most of us are trying to get by as best we can and trying to do the right thing. But we don't have that assurance when we step out and try to do the right thing that it's always going to work. Sometimes it does. Woo! Sometimes it doesn't. But, I, I, that's, but we have this woman, again, from, who is so boxed in by her circumstances, who nonetheless has this courage to step out and do this thing. And it's very reassuring to me. Because I, I can relate to Esther a lot more than I can relate to Moses, who gets all these cool signs and wonders, or one of the prophets, right? I feel like Esther is a text more for our time, where we can see somebody who's, who doesn't have the assurance, but yet steps out in hope that things are going to work out all right. So there you go. That's my, uh, that's my 15-ish minishes on that. Um, do we have any time for talkback? Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected, visit circleofhope.church. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at circleofhopenet.com.